Our text is Exodus 20, starting in verse 18. We are keeping with Pastor Don's schedule, and that's where we pick up. And it is remarkably difficult to find hymns that relate to the vision of God on Sinai and to laws about altars in the Old Covenant. The closest I could get to the visions of God as they are described here on Mount Sinai is immortal, invisible, God only wise. But you will notice a striking contrast. The last line of our song, "'Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee, Well, on Sinai, it was a dark cloud that hideth thee. What's going on? Well, we have to understand a little bit of the symbolism of not just the Old Testament, but of light and darkness and what those things mean, broadly speaking, in biblical understanding. And when we sing, "'Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee," we are singing about God's glory and Um, particularly his purity and things related to that. When we are dealing with God's dark cloud, as we are this evening, we're dealing with his glory in lethality. There are two sides of that. There is light and life and glory and splendor that emanate out from God, but that's deadly. And we will see how Israel reacted to that here in just a little bit. But before we pick up in verse 18, I do want to set the stage as briefly as I can. The narrative we are in here is kind of introduced in chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, and then he goes on with the Ten Commandments. But who is God speaking to? That's left a little bit ambiguous. If we go up into chapter 19, it's difficult to, to, to parse out the exact chronology of what's going on here, but it appears to be that Moses, in verse 21, is having a conference with the Lord on the top of the mountain, and the Lord says to Moses, verse 21, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. So the people cannot come up on the mountain. Priests are to consecrate themselves. Go down and tell them, Moses. Well, before Moses goes, he turns back and talks to the Lord. Verse 23, And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. He's not talking back. He's simply saying, you asked us to do this. We did this. Now what? Verse 24, And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron, who would have been consecrated by that point, with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So the way the text leaves the appearance is that Moses went back down. He was going to warn the people once again, don't break through and come near the foot of the mountain. And oh, by the way, Aaron is supposed to come up with me. But it is as if Moses is giving those directions. The voice of the Lord spontaneously just breaks forth from this smoke-filled mountain. 
chapter 20, verse 1. And God said, spoke all these words, saying, and then the Ten Commandments. That means all of the people heard these words that God had said, verses 2 through verse 17. They heard, no other gods before me, don't make idols, Um, don't swear falsely by my name, keep the Sabbath, and on down the list, they heard the voice of God speaking those words. And that experience was so overwhelming to them. Exodus 20, verse 18, where we pick up this evening, is how they react to it. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. So first, what the people reacted to, thunder, flashings of lightning, and the sound of the thunder and the smoke mountain, uh, mountain smoking. In chapter 19, it is described as a dark cloud enveloping the top of Sinai. Those things simply are a, uh, an expression of the concentrated um, presence of the Lord, if you want to put it that way. The people knew God was there, and it was absolutely terrifying. God's on the mountain. We're not by the mountain, but we're terrified by what we see. And so they come to Moses, verse 18 again, last half of it. The people were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood far off, and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So they keep their distance in panic. And they tell Moses, you go talk to God and we'll listen to you. But we don't want to hear what God has to say directly. That might seem like an act of cowardice. But Moses elaborates on this for us in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And after recapping their experience, Moses tells us the way God reacted to the Israelites' distance-keeping, fear and trembling, and asking Moses to mediate for them. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Now, what sort of reaction do you think God wants his people to have of him? We often say things like respect, right? As in, the gun is dangerous, respect it. Just be careful around it. Don't be careless or respect the bull. He's angry. He'll charge. Be careful. There's a reverence. Kind of a sort of a, an awe-inspiring acknowledgement of God's power. Whoa, that was, that was impressive. Right? Does God want us to have sort of a cautionary readiness? Like he's a potential threat, 
And we'll see what happens. Like Putin or Xi Jinping, what's he going to do? You know, is, is he going to kind of stay calm? Or is he going to lose his temper and suddenly decide to execute millions of people? Is that the way God wants us to react to him? How about an anxious nervousness, right? How many of you have ever felt that before you go into some meeting or meet with someone um, or have, have something coming up and you just kind of have that knot in your stomach and you're not sure how it's going to go, but you do know it's going to be passed in five hours and we'll be through it. Or does God look for something else? The Bible only knows one reaction that is appropriate to God's character. And it is found, oddly enough, on the lips of Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 25. This is how the people, this is how Moses remembers for Israel how Israel reacted to God. Deuteronomy 5, verse 25. Let's start in verse 24. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speaking with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore. We shall die. What sort of reaction do you think God wants? Uh, whoa. Or, we'll die! Right? There, there is a life-threatening panic that seizes Israel uncontrollably. When they see the manifestation of God, the tempered radiation of his glory, their reaction is panic, terror, fright. So they're, they're afraid to die. That's a different kind of fear than reverent awe. Right? What is the fear of the Lord exactly? It's the fear that if God does not relent, we will perish without remedy, without recourse, and without relief. Because the glory of God is eternally deadly. That's the God we have before us. That's the God Israel encountered. And that's the fear God is pleased with. Oh, that they would have a heart like this always. I want them to always be afraid of me. That's the foundation of wisdom. That's the foundation of worship. And the foundation of all right worship. If, in God's grace, he does relent, back now to Exodus chapter 20, he relents from overwhelming them and allows Moses to mediate. They pledge their obedience to Moses. So chapter 20, verse 19, and said to Moses, this is the people, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now, thrusting Moses into this deadly divine presence also seems quite cowardice, right? Now, we're not going to go. You go. And we'll, we'll stay back. But remember that God's design in speaking to them 
And God's design for showing his glory through the cloud was so that the people would always believe in Moses forever. That's Exodus 19.9. I will come to you in the cloud and speak with you so that they may believe you forever. Who was Moses, who was God speaking to when he gave the Ten Commandments? It's as if he was having a conversation with Moses when he knew the children could listen. That's what happens in Exodus 20. And the children, overhearing the voice of God, causes them this utter despair almost. This fear. Now we might say then that the ten words were spoken to the people, but I think it's more accurately that the Lord spoke to Moses. The people overheard, and God's sense, the the sense of threat that God allowed Israel to feel was that having Moses mediate was right. This way, when the people say, well, who are you, Moses? They won't have to say, well, who are you, Moses? Moses will say, I'm the one you asked to speak and to listen on your behalf and to whom you pledged your obedience as God's mouthpiece. So listen to me, listen to God. Don't listen to me, don't listen to God. Which is why having someone resurrected from the dead is not going to do anyone any good if they don't listen to Moses. Listen to Moses. He is the mouthpiece of God. But Moses goes on and he comforts the people before he goes back to speak with the Lord. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Do not fear, God's come to test you so that you might fear. Do not fear, God wants you to fear. How do we handle that then? Well, I think the way to handle that is that they are not to fear that God is going to do what is expected. God will not overwhelm them to the point of death. That's what you would expect this God to do, right? This holy and awesome and terrifying God, you would expect him to be that God, that he wouldn't relent, that when sinful people meet a holy God, the sinful people would just be consumed. Because remember, they don't have the five books of the Bible. They don't have Moses having described for them what this God is like. They don't have the New Testament where Jesus comes in the flesh. What they have is a vision of God on Sinai after he's part of the seas and killed thousands of Egyptians. And killed all the firstborn, by the way. First he kills the firstborn, then he drowns the Egyptian army, leads them to the mountain, shows up on this terrifying form. What are they supposed to think? But there is mercy, and Moses knows it. So Moses says, do not fear. Your expectations that you're about to die, it's not actually going to happen. Because that's not the kind of God We're here to worship. So do not fear, but always fear this God. So there's a fear we are to have and a fear we are not. And if our fear does not cause us to avoid sin, 
it is either the wrong kind of fear or a very weak fear. Because that's where God ends at the end, of where Moses ends at the end of verse 20. He has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. If our fear of God doesn't prevent us to some degree of wandering off the course, there is a deficiency in our fear. Either it's their own kind or it is simply unawakened. It is as if it lies dead and it is weak. But because the people asked for Moses to go, Moses goes as the Lord appoints him to, as he says in Deuteronomy 5.31, and Moses goes up the mountain, verse 21 of Exodus 20. So Exodus 20, verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. There's that picture of lethality. But we have more than that. Verse 22 to 26 we will also try to tackle. The text relays this as the first words of Moses' private conference with God as part of establishing the covenant. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. So the Lord simply tells Moses, Remind the people of what you have seen. You have heard the voice of God, and it was really God's voice that you heard, not another God, this God. And their terror of hearing God speak is to motivate their obedience in what comes here in the rest of chapter uh, verses 23 to 26. The first issue to be taken up is proper worship. Verse 23. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen and every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. The first issue is a negative expression of the proper way of worshiping the Lord. And here Moses has combined the first two commandments. The first one, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make gods of gold. And that is a fine translation. It could also be translated this way. You shall not make me gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. Rather than saying you shall not make gods of silver and gods of gold, it could simply be said, you shall not make me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. This is a blanket prohibition on making any form of God, either false gods or the true God, because you heard my voice, but you saw no form. Make no God that represents me. God has revealed himself in no form except a human in Jesus Christ, oddly enough. 
and that is significant. He isn't like anyone or anything else. And again, this commandment needs to be repeated so regularly because for us, it is foundational and rather unnatural. We tend to make our own gods, whereas we are not supposed to do that. The second commandment is a positive one, how to make altars correctly. They are to be built either of dirt or unadulterated stone, rocks. Why? Well, I will give you seven reasons, all very brief, um, but seven reasons, I think, why unadulterated stone or simply dirt. And if we're to understand these, we have to get some grasp of the symbolism that is being used through Israel's worship. All of their worship uh, brings along symbolism with it. It's helpful to understand that. The first reason given in the text, verse 25, if you build it of stone, if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. That altar is not theirs. The altar belongs to the Lord, and it's for his prerogatives, not our own. We are not to manipulate it, nor do we own it. If we put our tool upon it, if Israel puts their tool upon it, they act as if it is theirs to manipulate. It is not. Which leads us to the second thing. Human innovation and invention in worship is generally displeasing to God. God likes a variety, right? We have a hymnal full of songs, a great variety of songs. And I have no doubt that there is pleasure in those things. But if truth is jettisoned for emotional intuition or what feels right, that's an innovation. If worship in spirit, which is a worship of God's holiness, in a, um, in, in a, an adoration, if that is replaced with some experiential high I get during worship, we've innovated. The Lord has told us, worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. If those things are there, innovation is not there. Creativity might be, and definitely will be, but creativity and innovation are two different things. Innovation transgresses boundary lines. Creativity works within them. We are to be creative, not innovative. The Lord didn't say how to compile the stones or what size heap of dirt to make. He said, don't adulterate my altar. Third, the use of the altar is unique. It is where appeasement and fellowship happened. In this case, the Lord provides everything that is necessary for worshiping him. The dirt is there. The rock is there. Number four, only whole stones are to be used. Unblemished stones, you might say, just as an unblemished altar is to be used. Only the unblemished can be offered to God and we do not necessarily only give God what we would say is our best. We give back to God his best. 
Number five, the Lord allows for no degradation of one altar over another. Your altar is not better than mine because you could make it better. We are all even before the Lord. Rocks or stone, doesn't matter. The Lord provided them all. We simply compiled them. This altar is not fancier than this altar. This altar is not more pleasing than this one because it was made by better craftsmanship. We are attracted to fancy things the Lord is not. Number six, easy accessibility for all in quick fashion. Joshua can create an altar at Shechem when the hostile nations are still around him. People can spontaneously create or make an altar and worship the Lord in a moment of spontaneous praise, as does happen from time to time in the book of Judges. Number seven, it leaves a trace where the Lord has been worshipped. Scorched earth and rock is a testament to where Yahweh's name has been and where he has shown himself. And notice that that is the last, I will notice that in the text here, verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Every place I make my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Where they build these altars is not entirely up to their own fancy either. There are locations where they are meant to worship. Multiple locations, I'll point out, and there's a whole conversation to be had there, but multiple locations where the Lord will cause his name to be remembered because he has done something there. All of this adds up to the fact that we cannot manipulate God in worship, nor can we dictate where we worship. All is by God. And that's the tie to the idols, and that's the tie to fear. The idols are for the nations what altars were for Israel. The difference is no one worships an altar. Altars are not to be worshipped, but they show the presence of the deity. It's where the deity is appeased and pleaded with, just as idols were for the nations. So there is a contrast between an idol and an altar, but there's also a similarity. Worship in many places. They came about because God actually did something there, and it was believed that the false god actually did something there. And so there is a memorial aspect to it. But in this case, the emphasis is not on the convenience for the worshiper, but the act of God. And that's the real difference between worshiping idols and worshiping the true God. Worshiping God is not convenient because truth is not convenient. Worshiping in spirit is not convenient. That takes tremendous effort. But God supplies everything we need to do it. And no one's worship exceeds another. We'll close in prayer and we'll have a very brief break before we invite Tim to come up.